and I over these last uh, couple of weeks as we, uh, as I have watched the woman that God gave me as a, as a young boy in high school we met, and that turned into love, and then um, so many years ago we married, and to watch her go through the pain and struggle of having a knee replaced, your prayers have been appreciated. Um, God is gracious enough to allow her to be well enough to come here with me this morning. She walked in, uh, didn't want to, I don't know if she was afraid I would drop her a little electric scooter putting it in the truck, or if she just really wanted to walk in. So we appreciate those that have fed us and have lifted us up in prayer. And uh, we live in a marvelous age. I don't know how many fake knees and artificial shoulders are here, but I would imagine between uh, dentures and old age, there's a lot of spare parts laying around. <laughs> so we appreciate it. This morning, I am preaching through where Pastor Dan left off in the book of Luke, chapter 9. And one of the things the elders decided to do was, when preaching opportunities came, if we were in the middle of the book, was to continue on, to not just take a side road and, and preach whatever kind of came along, whatever was in that individual's heart. And, and Pastor Dan, because he loves me so much and values me so much, gave me 16 verses out of the ninth chapter of the book of Luke. And frankly, this is the first time I think I have ever preached through this section of the Gospels. And it was, it was a head-scratcher. Have you ever read a, a couple of passages of Scripture that have kind of left you going, gee, I wish I was smarter and I could understand what they were saying? It has taken me some time to get my head wrapped around this passage. So let me read it for you, and then we will pray, and then I shall continue to babble on. Luke 9, verse 46 and on. And an argument arose among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood beside him, stood him beside his side. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he is the least among you. This is the one who is great. And John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name when we tried to hinder them because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for he who is not against us is for you. And it came about, when the days were approaching for his ascension, that he absolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him, because he was journeying with his face towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. And as they were going along on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. 
Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the complexity of Scripture, for even the simplicity of Scripture, that you have had it and kept it and gave it to us in a way that even the most simplest of mine can understand. Lord, this morning, I desire that this simple mind would be capable of explaining those things that you have put in your word. Lord, lead my tongue. You know my heart, it's a mess. All of us struggle. Lord, just pray that today that you would use me in a way that brings glory and honor and praise to you. And I ask these things not because I am worthy, but because you are. In Christ's name, amen. Anybody here willing to admit you have a little problem with pride? Am I the only guy? I do. I have some problems with pride. And over the years, I've learned through a lot of really embarrassing situations to kind of swallow that pride. And, and we all suffer from it to some degree. It doesn't matter whether you're at the front of the pack or the back. All of us have always, one way or another, wanted to be the best. I knew at a young age that basketball wasn't going to be my forte, primarily because I was a fat little kid that couldn't jump. I've never been fast except to get to the dinner line. I'm not, I'm not gifted in sports. My golf score and my bowling scores are reversed. <laughs> yeah, sad but true. I take at least two dozen golf balls with me when I play because there's not a spot on the course I haven't found a place I could lose a golf ball in. I always wanted to be the best. I always knew I never would be. So let's think about those that traveled with Jesus. They've just been through some amazing times. Think about how would you like to have been there for the feeding of the 5,000? Can you imagine? Can you imagine what must have went through their heads? How about what went through the people? They're on the cutting edge of something really unique. The demoniac freed. Oh, that had to have been something, just to watch that demon flee. The woman with the issue of blood and Jairus' daughter has always fascinated me. There was a 12-year time span that all of these happened together in those people's lives. And Jesus comes, and in a matter of just a very short amount of time, both situations are resolved completely by the power of his word and his touch. And these guys are on the front line. They get to see that happen. You can imagine poor Jairus. He's looking at his daughter, and Jesus stops to deal with this woman that's had this problem. And he's going, hey, Hey, dude, my daughter's dying. She's been sick for years. She'll survive. And the disciples see how Christ handles that situation. And then the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, John's, and James, these guys have seen it all. They've been through it. You know what? It wouldn't be too hard to kind of step back and go, I'm one of the three. I've been there. I've seen it. I've ate lunch with him. I know what's going on. So don't think too harshly of these men because I know very few men or women that given the same circumstances may not have thought the same thing. I had a friend in college one time that called me and he said, hey, I just had lunch with so-and-so. I said, well, great, who's that? And he goes, well, don't you listen to country or Christian music? That's so-and-so the hymn writer. He said, I'm running with the big dogs. I said, dude, I'm pretty sure, but we're all on the same leash. Okay? 
I haven't heard from him in many, many years now. Apparently he didn't like that answer. So don't be too harsh on yourself if you have a problem with pride. Verse 47, 46. An argument started among them as to which might be of the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood beside him. I want you, before we go any further, to consider this. There's two sobering thoughts you need to keep in your mind. Jesus knows what you're thinking, and even more sobering, he knows why you're thinking it. You can hide a lot of things in this world. You can hide a lot of your behavior by saying, well, you don't know what I was thinking. You can never say that to Jesus because he knows what you're thinking. I would point this at young folks and say they know he knows what you're thinking, but I think, quite frankly, all of us in this room can be uh, covered under this umbrella really well. He knows our heart. He knows what our minds are. He knows where we're going. He knows why we do the things we do. Okay? So he knows these men. He understands these men, not only because he has spent time with them, but because he is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. He sees beyond the outer. He knows what's going on on the inside. And he looks at these men, and he knows what they're thinking. They're arguing over who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? Anybody remember Muhammad Ali? Remember him standing up going, I am the greatest? Time passes, he's not the greatest anymore. Tom Brady is. Just ask anybody in the sports world. <laughs> they have forgotten these couple of facts. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It doesn't matter how great you are. If you're, if you're doing it without the presence of God in your life and the power of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to accomplish nearly what you think you're going to accomplish. Later on, John 15, 6, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. God chose us to serve him. He chose us to be his people. He chose those that were elect to come and stand with him in the kingdom to be a part of the people he uses to change the world. So none of us have any grounds to say, I am the greatest. You're just one of the many. And I put myself at the bottom of that heap. And then my favorite book of the Bible, Colossians 1.13, reminds us, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So these guys may have been some of the first ever chosen, but they were still just chosen men. None of them ever had the right to be called the greatest. And in verse 48 he says, and he said to them, Whoever receives this child of my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among you, this is the one who is great. Children in the Hebrew world weren't, they were loved, they were cherished, they were cared for. But there wasn't a lot of time invested in them by the religious leaders. One of the, one of the, well, one of the notes I read says, one rabbi wrote, morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tearing in places where men of the common people assemble destroy a man. In other words, children were high on the value, weren't high on the value chart, and the real men of God would never waste his time with them. So Jesus brings these children into him, and he says, look, if you receive this child in my name, you receive the one who has sent me. And that's important because no one is beneath the reach of God. No one is so insignificant or so unimportant that God doesn't care about them. 
God cares deeply about each one of us. And it reminds us in this passage that no matter how far up the ladder you think you have went, you are no better than a child. Because a child and a human being and a man and a woman, we are all why Christ came to die for the redemption of each one of us. When I was in college, I gave my testimony to the same guy that called me about, you know, hanging out with the dude who wrote Christian music. And uh, I told him where Tony and I had come from in our testimony, and he said, boy, I'd have give up on you. He said, I'd have thought there's no way in the world you'd ever come to know Christ. And I said, you know what? I met a man who refused to give up because he believed I was worthy of the message of the cross. And that's the way it is with children. We need to continue to reach them and it's important for us to realize that all of us are like children before God. Verse 49, John answers and he says, Master, better go backwards, missed a page. Sorry, folks, I have a lot of pages and I'm trying to figure out what I don't want to say and what I do want to say. In verse 49, John answers and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent them because they weren't with us. And Jesus' response is, do not hinder him, for he who is not against us is for us. How many of you read Rick Presley's emails? Do you guys all get Rick Presley's emails? Yeah, I'm gonna pick on Rick for a minute. Is he in the room? What? Okay. Hi, Rick. Rick always has the most unique ministry opportunities. And, and I know that's because he's part of the missions or head of the missions group. I, I get that. But it reminded me in this passage that God has believers, has folks that are blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled Christians that are in ministries that you and I will never understand. There are people that minister to the uppers and outers who go and minister to the people that are super high in business and politics and share Christ with them. And then we have people that go to places like Beth Noon did to Haiti, where the poorest of poor are. There are ministries throughout this world that are being done by Christians that frankly here in Central Ohio, we will never fully understand. And that's okay, because we don't understand. We don't see what God is doing all the time. We only see what he allows us to see here. So Jesus is saying, they may not be with you as a group, but they are doing the ministry. And when the days were approaching for his ascension in verse 51, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Here's a quiz for, for you, pardon me. Where is he headed? What awaits him in Jerusalem? Anybody? The crucifixion. I don't know about you, but I've never really hurried anywhere to somewhere where I thought I was gonna have trouble. I don't even hurry going to work. In the timeline of Jesus' life, I want you to understand some things. From this point forward, moving to Jerusalem, things change dramatically. He's moving towards the triumphal entry. He's moving towards children screaming, Hosanna. He's moving towards the upper room. He's moving towards the betrayal from Judas. He's moving towards the Garden of Gethsemane in one of my favorite passages where Malchus' servant gets his ear chopped off and blood squirting out of him. Jesus puts it back on. The confrontation on the hill where the guards say, we're looking for Jesus, and he says, I am he, and God knocks him down, and then they're dumb enough to stand back up and go, yeah, we're after you. 
That had to be some seriously dumb guards. We're moving towards the rejection from Peter, where Peter says, I don't know the guy. We're looking towards the trial, towards the crucifixion, towards the grave, towards the tomb. He's moving forward. He set his face to go to Jerusalem, set it as flint into the wind. He leaned into the ministry and he's moving forward. And these guys are going to be a part of what is getting ready to happen. He's going to see it. He's, they're going to see him being moved from being adored to being abhorred. To, he will face the wrath of the religious leaders. He will suffer the greatest of penalties. He will bear our sins on the cross. And in the single greatest act of judgment God ever exacted on him, on the cross where he is stretched out in front of all, God will turn his back on his son. And in that moment, he will be all alone for the first time ever in all of eternity. He will not be able to see his father's face. And that's where he's headed. And he knows it's there. And yet for the sake of our souls, Christ stepped forward and headed towards Jerusalem to fulfill the call that God and the reason he came to earth to do, and that was to save man from an eternity in hell. That's where he's headed. So as you finish reading the book of Luke, and as we move forward, never forget, this is that turning point. He is moving towards Jerusalem. Imagine what it must have been like to be in the crowd and to hear them yell, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus, knowing all that he knows, he knows it's coming, and he knows what's going to happen. In verse 52, he sent messengers ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, but they did not receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. The Samaritans and the Jews wouldn't exactly have what you call a love-fest relationship. They hated each other. They hated each other on religious grounds and ethnic grounds. They just absolutely hated each other. So obviously, when they found out this, this Jew was headed towards Jerusalem, they're not going to welcome him in. And the disciples, James and John, saw this. They said, Lord, do you want us to command down fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's a pretty gutsy statement. But he turned to them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. They went on to another village. I can almost put this in modern day language. Jesus is standing there, and these guys come up and talk to him. And he looks at them. You can hear it. Really, guys? Come on. How long have you been with me? Have I called fire down on anything else? Is this, is this really what you think I'm all about? And frankly, if fire was going to be called down from heaven, don't you think I'd be the guy that did it? Quite proud, don't you think, to ask if, God, you want me to call fire down from heaven? Jesus reminds them that he's here to save. He's not here to destroy. He doesn't destroy. He's a builder. Yes, there are families, there are relationships that will be damaged and destroyed because of a relationship with Christ. But that's because people have accepted him and know him. They are now different. They've been through 2 Corinthians 5.17. Their lives have changed. They're different. They can't be the same. Not because fire fell and consumed their enemies. And let's not forget these same people that hated him, that hated Jews, 
are some of the same people Christ came to die for. He came to die for the Samaritans as well. There's no one on the planet that Christ didn't come to die for. That's why they need to be told. That's why we minister to children. That's why we have missions. That's why we preach. That's why I'm hoping that in that back room back there where they're sitting, that you, if you know people that know Christ that need to be told about Christ, and you know people that are unsaved, you need to share the message of the gospel with them. Why? Because it's important and it matters, and it's of eternal consequences. And then as he was going along the road, someone hollows, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The stark reality, my friends, about Christianity is God may lead you to some places that are pretty uncomfortable. Tony and I went to Haiti. I didn't want to go. They got great big spiders there. And I honestly, i scared to death of spiders. Doesn't matter whether it's as big as my nail on my little finger or as big as my hand. They all freak me out. They just scare me to death. And it can be debilitating. But I went because I felt God wanted me to go. Wouldn't traded that experience for all the money in the world. There is nothing you can do that will ever replace what I felt when I was on the mission field in Haiti working with Beth Newton. God's going to lead you, child of God, to places that are uncomfortable, to deal with people that make you uncomfortable. And part of that may be very real, that someday you lay your head down and you don't know where the next day you're going to sleep. You may not know where your next meal is coming from. But you'll never be alone. As a child of God, you are never alone. Christ is with you at every step. Our pastor, oh, Pastor Dan, I should say, has faced some pretty, pretty dark days here at JIBC. There were times when things weren't always as good as they are now. And we know that God has always, always, always watched over his children. He's never been alone. Sometimes it feels like it. You'll never, ever, ever be alone with Christ. With Christ in you, you are a conquering force. God put us in places, Tony and I, that were very uncomfortable, with people that have made us absolutely uncomfortable, but God has always given us a way to minister. Do not be afraid. Jesus didn't have a place to hang his hat, if you will, to lay his head. It's not that he didn't want one, and it's not that he didn't need one, but he knew that he would be cared for. Same thing with you. And another said to him, follow me. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Stop right there. You'll notice in the passage that there's no reference to the fact that maybe his dad was already dead. His father, according to the passage, you don't know if he's alive or not. If he's alive, he might live another 20 years. He might die the next day. None of us are promised when we're going to go. I don't know when I'm going to go. I don't know when any of you are going to go. My mother is in a nursing home right now, and frankly, I'm, I am surprised that she has done as well as she has, and I'm not being mean. Okay? I know what she's been through medically, and yet I watch her, and I see her when I can, and she's still puttering along, and I'm stunned. I would have never guessed that my mother would have lived this long. I'm thrilled that she's still alive. So for this guy to go, hey, let me bury my father, that could have been 20 years. 
when Christ says, follow me, it doesn't mean to take a gap year like so many high school students out of high school do before they go to college. A lot of them, that gap year turns out to be the gap decade where they never go at all. I get it. Don't get a set of date like a couple getting married. So, well, I'll start, well, you know, you know, Jesus, I'll follow you in, um, well, I'm going to retire in September. Give me a month for some playtime. I'll, I'll pick up in November, okay? I'll, I'll jump on board in November. Doesn't work that way. Christ calls the man and says, follow me. Now is the time to follow. Today is the day to move forward in your discipleship of Christ. The desire to bury his father is a good one. Don't get me wrong. It's not wrong. It's not evil. Actually, in the Old Testament, you were expected to care for your parents, and that included burying them and taking care of them. And Jesus is not forsaking that. He is just saying, frankly, do this now. This is of greater importance. To follow Christ is to reject the world's views. In reality, you may become unpopular. You may be unliked, you may be a standoff. I've lost jobs. Had an opportunity to witness to a whole crew full of guys one time in a building. We were up on about the seventh floor. The only thing around us from the outside was a plywood shed with some insulation stuck on it. That was our break room. That's where we uh, put our winter clothes on. It was cold. There was uh, 14 guys in a room that were probably, the room was probably 16 by 10, crowded to say they're stinky. Trash never got emptied, it was bad. These were some real vile men who made all kinds of horrible comments. And one day I had decided I'd had enough. And I asked God to give me the courage to witness to these men. So one fellow was sitting there and he was spouting off what the Bible said. So I reached in my dinner bucket and I took my old King James out and I just kind of gave it a toss and I landed in front of him. You'd have thought I'd thrown a snake in front of them. And he went, I don't want that. He said, you can't preach to us. I said, I've sat here and listened to everything you guys had to say. Now I'm going to tell you what Christ has said. And I witnessed to the man and the whole crew sitting there. And I told them all the plan of salvation. And they said, what if nobody ever hears? I said, that doesn't apply to you because I just told you. I got laid off the next day. Didn't fit into the crew dynamic. I walked out of that job that day with my tools in my hand and my dinner bucket, singing little by little in every day and little by little in every way, Jesus is changing me. And never looked back. You'll be unpopular if you follow Christ. The world doesn't want to hear it. They don't understand it. <coughs> and, and, but he, and then another man said, pardon me, let me get backwards. And then verse 6, he said, but he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as far as you proclaim the kingdom everywhere. Jesus presses us to follow him now, not later. Young people, now, you're at the crux of your life right now. You're at a point where you're going to make decisions based on what you know that is going to affect you for the rest of your life. I'm sure that if all of us old people could give you some idea of the mistakes we've made, you would still probably make the same ones. But I adjure you, do not make the mistake of forsaking Christ in your life. If you, feel the, if you feel the tugging of the Holy Spirit to follow Christ, follow it. Pick it up and run. Set your faces flint. Go hard. Don't hold back. God will never let you down. In verse 61, another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say goodbye to those at home. 
How many of you hate long goodbyes? I hate long goodbyes. If you're leaving, just say goodbye and then turn around and go. We, we dropped our oldest off at Bible College in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. And I, I'd been ready for the kids to leave when they were from their time they were like five. <laughs> go. Every time I bought diapers, I thought, man, this has got to end pretty soon. And we dropped Mandy off at Bible College and how, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty good with the, you know, let us know what you need, stay in touch, love you, we'll call, et cetera, et cetera. Mom's helping her unpack and rearrange the room, and wants to go to Walmart and buy some stuff. And I'm like, yeah, you know, she's on her own, honey. And uh, finally, after what seemed to be like four days, I said, it's time to go. So I kind of grabbed her by the arm and, you know, kind of drug her out. She cried all the way to, uh, she cried for it seemed like ever. I still think she's crying. But it was time to sever. It was time to say goodbye. It was time to leave. It was time for her to start her own life. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, Oh, young man, when you are thinking of leaving the world, be afraid of these farewells. They have been the ruin of hundreds of hopeful people. They have been almost persuaded but they have gone to their old companions just to give them that last kiss, the last shake of the hand, and we have not seen anything more of them. You can't wait. You can't say, I'll get around to this. Let me go say goodbye. Let me clean myself up. Let me, let me get a couple dollars in the bank. Let me get my education before I serve you. I want to be good at what I'm doing. Jesus says, now. There is no time. Wait. We'll also pick on our young people one more time just because I love them and I care about them. If your romantic interest, Mr. Wonderful or Miss Wonderful or Miss Holy Cow, <laughs> if they're willing to put you in front of their relationship with Christ, throw that fish back because you can't clean them and they ain't keepers. How many of you older folks here would say amen? You're not going to fix them because they broke, okay? And it doesn't matter male or female. If they'll put you in front of their relationship with Christ, they're not worth having. You want a godly man or a woman that are going to put Christ in front of you. Because if they've got Christ in front of you, then he will take or she will take care of you. Because that's what Christ is going to compel them to do. I don't mean to pick on you all the time, but you guys are so easy, you don't fight back. <laughs> and Jesus also goes on in verse 62 and says, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I know in this modern day and age, tractors are programmed by GPS, and some guy goes out and he plots the field, and they download all of that stuff, and they come out with a, with a flash drive which has 40 times more, 400 times more memory than my first computer did, and they put it in the little doodad there on the dash, and the thing drives itself around the field. Okay, but it hasn't always been that way. It used to be when the plowman would go out, he had to keep an eye on where he was going, or your, your rows would be all over the place. What he's saying is, is if you're going to go forward and you're going to do my work and you're going to do the work of the ministry and you're going to follow Christ and you've got to keep your eyes fixed on him and straight down the line. Straight on, no veering left or right, absolutely dead on towards Christ. 
I know when I'm at work, I have a bad neck from this. Electricians do a lot of this. Because everything we do is in the air. And, and I can do that for a couple of minutes, and then after a few, I, my neck really hurts, but I'll follow a piece of conduit, and sometimes it's a long run, and I'm walking along, trying to figure out where it goes, and then I gotta stop and look down because I don't trip over something, and I've lost it, and first I got the wrong conduit, I wind up clear over there when I need to be over there, because I didn't keep my eyes on where I was going. You've gotta keep your eyes on Christ to keep moving forward. Nothing else in the world is as important as following where Christ would have you to go. There was another guy that, whose quote I really liked. My daughter wrote this on the wall of, of her bedroom in our house before she moved out in Magic Marker, and I really appreciated that because it reminded me several times as I painted over it by Omar Bradley, a World War II general. And it was quoted as saying, set your course by the stars, not by the lights of every passing ship. If you're out to sea, I'd always, I always admired old sailors came across and they would use a sextant and they would chart their path by the stars. And they would know where they were by the relationship of the stars and where they were and they could triangulate all that out. They were a much smarter man than myself. Bradley saying much like Christ said, follow the path straight. Chart your course by Christ, not by what everybody else is doing. God hasn't called you to be like everybody else. God has called you to be like Christ. To be like Christ, there should all be some balance in our lives as to what we look like as we serve him. Not externally, but internally. <laughs> the Apostle Paul made this crystal clear in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. I want to read them for you this morning. More than that, I count all the things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, count them all but rubbish that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which, be, which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul knew that everything else had to go by the wayside. All that he had, all that he had become, the letters behind his name, the, the stigma that goes with him, and the prestige that would have went with him as being the man, a Jew of Jews, a tribe of Benjamin, all had to go away. Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. If you're not letting God consume you and use you and move you, then you are robbing yourself of the life of so much excitement and so many challenges and yes, disappointment, but God will never leave you where he does not want you. It's been said you can't steer a parked car. And that's very true. All you will do is wear out the tires. I ask you this morning in closing, have you decided to follow him or are you just playing the religion game? I can't tell. I don't know. I don't have that ability. Pastor Dan, do you have that ability? Andy, you can't tell. None of us can tell. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know your heart. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what, what, you're, what you're doing. Some of you, quite frankly, I see your faces. I can't put a name on them. But I do know this. 
that Christ knows. God knows where you are. He knows what you are doing. He knows your thoughts. He knows why you're thinking them. And furthermore, you can't fool him. Just like Jesus knew when the men started an argument about who was the greatest, he knew why. He knew what and why they were having their argument. That kind of argument should never exist in the church because frankly, all of us are servants. All of us have called to be servants. Servants are the lowest in the room. They get the least amount of respect. They never get any fanfare. You don't see a servant of the year award, but God knows and God rewards servanthood. Servanthood and discipleship run hand in hand. You can't be a disciple if you're not going to serve. Just that simple. So I ask you this morning, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you set your course. Today is the day you answer the question, am I going to follow him or am I going to follow my path? I can't make those decisions for you. I can help you get through the questions, but I cannot answer them for you. Join me as we pray. Father God, we're grateful for all that you have done. <clears throat> for using stammering, stuttering lips as my own for the message of scripture, for the words that you included in that book for us to have that changes lives. Lord, I pray this morning that your fire would fill every heart in the room, that all of us would be driven to follow, that all of us would be driven to serve, that all of us would desire to become disciples, followers, leaders, and teachers, that we would all desire to do the work of the ministry, whether it is in great ways or small, but yet that you would receive all the glory and all the honor for all that is happening. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for all that you've given us for this beautiful day. I thank you for all of the technology you've given us, which allows us to be in different places. And now, Lord, we'd ask that once again, as we leave this place, that you would quicken our hearts, you would steady our spirits, you would encourage the weak, you would strengthen those that are struggling. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>